If the books of First and Second Samuel were movies, today's chapter would be a fitting end to the first movie. In fact, it is the end of our first sermon series in these books. We'll return to First Samuel at a later date. We're ending in First Samuel 12, if you want to be turning there in your own Bibles. If you are parents in particular and have been following along with us these last few weeks, maybe like me, you've been scratching your head at God. Because I've been saying this, that God, the father of the Israelites, has basically let his kids spit in the face of his authority. (laughs) They have rejected him as king. 1 Samuel 8, 7 tells us that plainly. That's how God sees it. <clears throat> and while you or I as parents would say, that's not going to fly. <laughs> that's, that's just not going to happen. <laughs> God tells Samuel, the, the judge, basically the, lia- the liaison between God and Israel, the, the vessel in which God was ruling Israel, God tells Samuel, okay, appoint them a king. Like if Calvin said, hey, I want a different dad, <laughs> I'd be heartbroken. But I would be okay, and I would tell him, tough luck, kid, you're stuck with me. I don't, don't know what else to tell you. I feel like God is here said to Samuel, ouch, they rejected me. Okay, make it so. And then we've discovered that God takes it further. He's, he's blessed them immensely with the king that they've wanted. He found them Saul. He changed Saul's heart. He saved Israel in a war through Saul. But that moment of discipline, that moment of, hey, we really need to talk about this, is finally upon us, right? How many of you parents like having that talk to begin with? Uh, Samuel kind of had that talk. He pretty much, um, whenever they asked for another king, but now that the emotions have died down and now that they have their king, God through Samuel is going to have that talk again. So let's start today in 1 Samuel 12. We will be studying it all, but we're just going to begin with reading verses 1 through 5. I invite you to stand one last time in honor of reading God's Word together. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you. And I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am, testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken, or whose donkey have I taken, or whom have I defrauded, whom have I oppressed, or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, You have not defrauded us, or oppressed us, or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. Let's pray. Father, we've been spending several weeks together reminding ourselves, telling ourselves that indeed we have a king. Father, it's going to be so loud and clear today as we read Samuel's words to Israel that no matter who is on the earthly throne, you're always on your throne. And no matter what sort of kingdom, democracy, government we live in, we still have a king. 
no matter what enemies attack us, whether they be physical, spiritual, in disease, emotions. Father, you have a king over them all. You've calmed the waves. You've cast demons from people. You've healed people of diseases. You are our king. We thank you that we do have a king, that it's you and nobody else. A king who is marked by your love, your mercy, your grace, your covenant towards us. And Father, as we study and sit under these words today, we pray that your truth would penetrate our hearts and would cause us to respond in a way that's glorifying to you, that's obedient to you. And would you continue to remind us that we love because you first loved us. Father, we ask for your spirit to be speaking. We ask for open hearts and open ears. We ask this all knowing and praying in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm a bit of a history buff. I like shows and I like books about our presidents, among many other topics. A while ago, Christy and I sat down to watch a long movie. In fact, I think it was two TV movies put together, and we managed to break it up into about four or five nights with kids. And uh, they depicted, it was about Harry Truman, and they depicted a few of his uh, speeches, and among them was his farewell address. And I remember within the next few days or weeks of having watched all that, I, whenever I had a chance, just out of curiosity's sake, I went on the internet and I found uh, the real Harry Truman's farewell address, see how closely it matched, and and I just got a little interested, and I watched George W. Bush's, I watched Clinton's, I watched a few other presidents of their last farewell speeches. And a lot of the presidents in their farewell addresses usually say something like this. I'm honored and humbled to be part of a system that peacefully transfers such immense power from one administration to the next, and there is a historical and constitutional precedent for this, so I'm glad to do my part. <laughs> And they, they value the historical precedent. And, and even when parties are switching in the White House, Constitution lays out, this is okay, it's how it's supposed to be. And contrary to recent elections, people shouldn't riot and protest, but should be okay with it. Now, granted, back in the early days of our nation, it really didn't feel like such a us and them. <laughs> that power was shifting between citizens of our nations, not between what feels like two social elite ruling parties. In our nation. In any case, picture this for Samuel. He is not a president handing off the power. He is the last kind of his leader in Israel, and he's peaceably handing the powers that he does have into a figure that will have much more power. It's a unique thing because Saul has not come into power like many kings. He didn't fight, conquer, subdue, and subjugate. Rather, because Israel demanded a king, Saul was chosen by God. There be no doubt of that in our studies. And so we have this interesting address from Saul, Samuel, from Samuel. And it's not even a farewell address for Samuel because he's not done in the national scheme of things. In fact, whenever we return to 1 Samuel for part two, he's going to be informing Saul, hey, you lost your kingdom. <laughs> And Samuel will then be anointing David to be king. In fact, this really seems to me, as you read it, a court case. (laughs) As such, I've sectioned off our passage into four sections today using court terms. Today we read about Samuel vindicated. 
Then we read about Yahweh vindicated. And then Israel is convicted. And then lastly, there is mercy and judgment. So first, where we open verses 1 through 5, Samuel is vindicated. We remember back in 1 Samuel 8 when Samuel first hears that Israel wants a king. He says, but the thing, Samuel or the author of our book tells us, the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And I don't know about you, but I got this idea that it personally hurt Samuel. I mean, what did he do? What? That, that nearing his later years, this is how his service goes returned. So maybe here is Samuel here at the beginning of chapter 12 showing himself to be blameless and undeserving of any replacement. But before we jump into that, perhaps it's also first intriguing to us, where is Samuel giving this farewell address? <laughs> See, if we jump from chapter 11 into chapter 12, at the cha- end of chapter 11, Samuel Saul and much of Israel were at Gilgal, basically at a huge worship service. Sacrifices were being made to the Lord. They were just victorious over a ruthless enemy uh, in his army, Nahash and the Ammonites. You remember him, the eye gouger. And then Saul had rallied Israel together to defeat them. Everyone was happy to pledge allegiance to Saul. And Samuel said, this was the king that was chosen for you. And it seems kind of interesting if if then Samuel turns around and then, okay, now let's have a court case. <laughs> I, You know, I don't know. There seems to be an end to this episode, and maybe this is a later date, or maybe this is out Gilgal. We don't know. But then again, we, we read at the beginning, and Samuel said to all Israel, now, I don't mean, I don't take this to mean every last person in the kingdom. I mean, unless if they're at a big gathering place, a really big gathering place. Likely a large representation of Israel, likely all the elders, maybe that first came to him requesting a king to be there. He says, Behold, says Samuel, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. Interestingly, a mirror of the exact words in 1 Samuel 8.22 where the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Back in chapter 12, Behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. These opening words, I want you to hear the the character of faithfulness and obedience of Samuel. Even in this, whenever he's told by his people to to appoint a more powerful successor in leadership which is without a doubt very hard for any person to take. Samuel held the reins, if you will, the highest office in leadership in Israel, humanly speaking, and was willing to obey God, even if it meant sacrificing his power to give to another. Another figure in which he foresaw and forewarned Israel would mean certain problems. Again, in 1 Samuel 8, he maps out, here's what a king in Israel will look like. He'll be a taker. (laughs) He'll take everything, all your produce, your money, your children, and you to be his slaves. That's what a king will be. Samuel was willing to do what he could, though, then to anoint a king. Some would say, why? Did he hate Israel? (laughs) No, not because he wished the worst on them. Quite the opposite. He obeyed God 
loved God and had the heart of God, as we have seen these past couple of weeks, God's heart is to graciously assist Israel to give them the best sort of king that they could have. In some words, you could say, here, have your cake and eat it too. And Samuel says he's walked before them until this day. He intends to continue, actually. He's not retiring. In fact, to use our language that we might understand, he's joining the cabinet of the Saul administration. He's going to be a prophet for Israel, which has considerable less power. The king will have the choice of ignoring or abiding by his advice. But now it seems Samuel goes in for the why here. He says, basically, what did I do to make you want a king? Verse 3, here I am, testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken or whose donkey have I taken or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. Interestingly, to me it seems, Samuel seems to be intentionally using language that he used back in 1 Samuel 8 in his first speech about the problems with wanting a king. He said that kings would take oxen and donkeys, and and though Samuel didn't warn about this, we do know that many kings in Israel and Judah's history to come would defraud and oppress and take bribes. Nevertheless, Samuel asks here as a judge, am I a guilty, am I guilty here? Cause if I am, I'll gladly pay anyone back who thinks I owe them. Well, they said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. In other words, you're innocent, Samuel. <laughs> You've been a great leader. You're blameless. <laughs> and he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. So they've called God to witness. They've sworn before God. Apparently they weren't Quakers. (laughs) And they saying that he's witness and what Samuel said was true. He's a blameless leader. Samuel is vindicated. But Samuel isn't just saying all this to feel good about himself. (laughs) Right? You and I know that that while he's not sinless, he doesn't seem to be that (laughs) self-concerned. Ha, I've gotten you to say I'm a great leader. Look at me. I'm so awesome. Rather, like a calculating lawyer, he's building a case. He's gotten them to say that he was a good leader. Well, now he's going to present the case that Yahweh was a good king. Because Yahweh has always been king. Samuel's moving from being the defendant, having been vindicated. Now he's heading into the role of prosecutor and the people are becoming the defendants. We're going to be moving into... Verses 6 through 11, where Yahweh is vindicated. Beginning with verse 6, we read, And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, And the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines and into the king, a hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, we have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. 
And the Lord sent Jeroboam and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. Samuel gave a little bit of history for God's interaction with his people. A key phrase here, if you highlight your Bibles, uh, verse 7, I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord. Because here's the truth. The crime of the Israelites is having desired a king in total disregard of all the deeds, the righteous deeds of the Lord. Throughout the time of the Exodus and the judges. In other words, Israel was not just judging human leaders unfit for leadership. They were judging God himself unfit for kingship. When God has been faithful to his covenant, he has never left his covenant. No matter where Israel is as a nation, if they're essentially free, they're first off better than they were for 400 years or so, whenever, though they were a people, they were in Egypt as slaves. And Samuel brings this up. He, he recounts when Jacob, named Israel, who came to Egypt as a slave before becoming prime minister under the Pharaoh and saving his people, that generation passed away until the Hebrews were so numerous that the Egyptians decided to enslave them. God delivered Israel from that. No war, just plagues. A pursuit ending with the world's greatest military drowning in a sea. A race of slaves free to conquer the promised land. But they didn't conquer all of the promised land. And even though they conquered some of the land they did, Samuel reminds them, they forgot the Lord their God and he sold them into the hand of Sisera commander of the army of Hazor, if you want some names for your next baby, and in the hand of the Philistines. This is whom Samson fought against, and Samuel also fought against the Philistines. And into the hand of the king of Moab. Now, if you're interested, this is the judge Ehud who fought against, and they fought against them, and they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Asherah. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jeroboam. Does anybody know who Jeroboam is? Gideon. Better known as Gideon. <clears throat> who fought against the Midianites and Barak, not Obama, a different Barak. And Deborah, who fought against Sisera. And then Jephthah, which delivered the Israel from the Ammonites. And the Ammonites were the latest enemies that... Saul and Samuel just fought against last chapter. <clears throat> and Samuel, and delivered you out of your hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. A few interesting things here. Interesting that Samuel lists both enemies that Israel had most recently, recently been fighting again. He listed the Philistines and the Ammonites. And also, there's a little bit disagreement here about Samuel naming himself here at the end of verse 11, if you have a Bible in front of you. As far as I can tell in my studying, most of the disagreement comes from the idea that some folks, commentators, maybe even ancient scribes, fear that, that Samuel naming himself just seems out of character for Samuel, a little bit too self-serving. As in, surely Samuel wouldn't name himself among the many judges of Israel, that's just Samuel's too modest. He's too humble. And like in a speech about presidents and who they are and what they did, is Donald Trump going to name himself? 
Yes, he is. However, more humble presidents like President Lincoln might not. I don't know. But ancient manuscripts like the Septuagint or the the Syriac, some of you are like, what are those manuscripts? They're just ancient manuscripts. We have the original Hebrew where we put our Old Testament Bibles in. But then there are other ancient manuscripts. Septuagint is a Greek translation and so forth. Anyways, those ancient manuscripts will in fact put Samson there instead of Samuel for the judges. And so, I don't know, I go with the ancient Hebrew. It maintains that Samuel named himself. And I think there's a purpose for that. Um, I tend to not be put off by that because under the judgeship of Samuel, long-time enemies like the Philistines and the Ammonites were still being thwarted by God. God was still delivering Israel. Because that's the point. God always shows up to save Israel. He's faithful. He's done it always without a king. He's recently done it with with a king. No matter if there's a king or not, God answers faithful prayers. God is faithful to answer his people when they cry out, no matter how far they have sunk into immorality. So having vindicated God, he's faithful. He's always faithful. Samuel then moves in to convict Israel. Samuel continues here in verse 12, and he says, And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, and you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, and asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord. The Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord, your God, that we may not die. For we have added to our sins all this evil, added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. Sometimes what we read about in the scriptures versus it playing out in reality in the present time, sometimes we're not so quick to connect the dots, are we? It's not like Israel didn't know their history of the time of the judges. It's not like Israel didn't hear from their prophets and their teachers and their parents, if their parents were devout, the names Gideon, Deborah, Barak, Jephthah, let alone Moses. These were all towering figures. I'm sure for us it would be like hearing about George Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, FDR, whoever. And so Samuel brings all these names up. Gideon, Barak, Samuel, God has always been faithful to deliver you through every oppressor. Never has he ever said, I don't hear you, I don't have the power, I can't do it this time. (laughs) And then, when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was king. As in for them, that's the final straw. We know God's delivered us in the past. We know God's even defeated the Ammonites in the past. But this is new. (laughs) This is Nahash the Ammonite, the eye gouger. He's already taken two tribes. This is new. This happens to us. (laughs) 
God has seen Western civilization through barbarians and plagues and wars and diseases. But this coronavirus, right? (laughs) These killer hornets. This is all new. we got to reorient our thinking. we got to go with plan B. This is new and it's destined to murder us where we sleep. No. (laughs) No. In fact, only a generation or two after Samuel will a king in Israel named Solomon, who has lived the life that everybody wants to live, king in the prime days of a kingdom, richest man in the world. So among the rulers of the world, the wisest man in the world, in his day, probably smarter than Google, he had an encyclopedia in his head. He says, what has been is what will be, and what will has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. God is never wowed. And if we can grasp that, you know, if we can ever wake up, you know, if we can, if we can realize that we should never wake up and say, wow, that's new. <laughs> Don't know what to do about that. That one's really thrown me. That's the point is Israel was not on the verge of world ending possibilities. If they wanted salvation, they would have had it without a king. But Israel throughout God's perfect track record of deliverance, for a king like all the nations, and then God conceded, and here we are in verse 13, and now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold the Lord has set a king over you. Now this is Samuel declaring the obvious, but it also emphatically means this, that the case is closed, the deal is done, the train wreck is happening, and there's no turning back. And this is further solidified by Samuel declaring here in verses 14 and 15, which are called the covenant blessings and curses. You obey God, you'll be blessed and you'll succeed. You disobey God, you'll be cursed and you will not succeed. If you want another phrase to highlight, particularly here in verse 14, a good way to live the, the Christian life, if you will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice. Fear, serve, obey the Lord. These covenant blessings, these proclamations to love, serve, and not rebel against God, they are benchmarks in Israel's history. Moses declared it in Deuteronomy in in his last book of the Bible and in his last sermons to the people. Joshua recited it to the people after they conquered what promised land they did before the time of the judges. And here we are at the end of another era in Israel's history, the dawn of the monarchy. And again, Samuel tells them. So while Samuel's been building a case, first, He, Samuel, is a blameless leader. There was no fault in him for Israel that should have led Israel to desire a king. Secondly, God is a perfect king, a flawless track record, always delivering his people when prayed to. So it is Israel, Samuel says, who is at fault for asking for a king when they already have one. And then before Israel can make any defense and disagree with Samuel's accusation, we saw in verses 16 through 18 that God brings thunder and rain to supernaturally verify this is the case. This is the time of the wheat harvest. Was was I know you know when wheat harvest is in Israel, so I don't need to tell you. I'm just kidding. Between May and June, Israel has a long, dry season with hardly any rain from about late April to October. So we're like kind of, I guess, a little bit after the beginning, and rain and thunder doesn't happen all the time. So, and plus, just the fact that Samuel says, "Hey, it's going to thunder and rain," and he prays, and it happens. So, <laughs> with God's super supernatural affirmation of what Samuel has presented is true, it says, and all the people 
said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. This is the moment that parents wait for (laughs) after discipline, right? True heartfelt repentance seems to be happening here. Finally, after four chapters, we don't know how many months or years, finally Israel Israel realizes how selfish and how anti-God they sound from chapter 8. Give us a king like the nations. Now here's how my little brain works as I was studying this. God didn't want a king. The people are finally realizing that it was a sin to ask for a king, so why does there still need to be a king? <laughs> like, doesn't that feel like the repentance here is a little bit disingenuous? Oh, we added to our sins, we asked for a king. Like, why does Samuel not say here, finally you get it. Okay, Saul, thanks for saving us. You can go home now, <laughs> right? I have two sons. We'll straighten them out. We can pray and ask God to give us the next righteous judge. We'll just continue. But at the same time, I think about it, Israel has taken some notable steps here, among them being at least one more private ceremony and two public ceremonies to say now that Saul is king. And secondly, though it says all Israel is hearing Samuel here, I have to imagine, just because I know it happens in a group of 20 people, in a group of lots of people, staunch oppressors will always exist, right? Or opposers, I should say. In other words, I can already hear, well, King Saul was used by God. And others like are like skeptics we know today in the face of plain evidence of God's existence. Well, Samuel got lucky. He saw the storm coming. God's not really upset. Most of all, though, as I've been pointing out these last several weeks, while God did not want a kingdom, he nevertheless, he conceded, and then he appointed. God appointed Saul. He went through great supernatural length to show his people, here is the king I appoint to you. So God was and always would consider what Israel did a distinct rejection of himself for Israel to demand a king. But equally, God also wanted Israel to eat their own choices and live with the consequences of their choices. I hate threatening Calvin with spankings (laughs) because I don't like giving spankings. And... If I threaten him with the spanking, knowing, knowing also that whatever action he is doing will get him that, I have to follow through with it. <laughs> and the odds are he know he's going, I know he's even going to continue that action and receive what's coming to him. But simply because I can backtrack and I can say, well, I know I told you I'd give you one, but we'll just settle for, I shouldn't do that. <laughs> God had the ability to backtrack and say to Israel, well, now that you've repented and you agree with me that Choosing a king over me was a bad move. I'll just take back my appointed king and we'll go back to the way things were. Rather, Israel now has to live with a monarchy. And they find that just as whenever you and I sin drastically and we have to accept whatever the consequences, whatever the life changers that that brings, so does Israel. God's grace is still available even with those consequences. Verse 20, And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Now just stop and think about that sentence for a minute. Did you catch that? Interesting choice of words to first try and comfort the people. Don't be afraid. You're the reasons you're in this pickle and you're the ones who did all the evil. Nothing to be afraid about. Like, okay, I shouldn't be afraid because I'm the one who took the torch to my house. (laughs) Samuel goes on because he has to explain himself here. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. 
And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. That's why they need not to be afraid. God still redeems. God always redeems. God's always available to return to even when we're the guilty ones committing evil. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. I don't know about you, but I seem to forget this truth constantly. (laughs) The entire reason that God is faithful to me, the entire reason that that He is loving to me, and the entire reason that I can bank on His faithfulness, His love, His forgiveness every single time has absolutely nothing to do with me. He, says Paul, cannot deny Himself. Samuel says, For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake. Do you hear that? The reason God is faithful to us is because of who He is, not because of who we are. The reason He loves us is because of who He is, not who we are. Paul says to the Romans, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ dies for the ungodly. Christ dies for the sinners. God is is gracious, always gracious to the Israelites, even whenever they reject Him and want a king like the nations. God enters the king and delivers Israel from their enemies through that king, the very person Israel selected and desired over God Himself. Why? How can God do that? I can tell you this, it's not because He's so impressed or so beckoned or so moved or so influenced by the actions of people. It's because God is beckoned and moved and influenced by His great love for His people that it causes Him to be merciful, gracious, and giving because He loves. He can't deny His very nature. He can't help but be gracious as who He is. Samuel reflects his Lord too as he tells him here in verse 23, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Samuel is saying here, even though you've done away with me as judge, I will always be here praying for you and giving you the Lord's wisdom for both you and the king as long as you'd hear it. Verse 24, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart for consider what great things he has done for you. Do you hear the source, the foundation, the reason that they should fear and serve the Lord faithfully with all their heart? Not out of dread, not out of fear of punishment, not out of the the simple fact because Samuel's a good guy and he told them to, by golly, were they better, but out of the consideration of what great things he has done for us. That is the gospel right there. We love because he first loved us. But then Samuel has to throw a wrench in the works. (laughs) Because he's been saying, and Paul says, and the Bible says, he loves because of himself. His very nature is what causes to be God to be loving and gracious. And before we get too far into that, Samuel then says to the Israelites, a great way to end his speech, but if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. (laughs) 
See you later. Bye. (laughs) Even though God is faithful where we are faithless, does not mean God's faithfulness will always look like it'll be well for us. Sometimes God's faithfulness comes in the form of strong love. Sometimes God's faithfulness means deliverance after He has let the enemies come in and invade the land. Sometimes God's faithfulness means the forgiveness of sin offered through the broken body of Jesus Christ. But but if you are in habitual sin today, seek forgiveness through Jesus' name and you will have it, but you will still also have any of the consequences of your sins here and now as well. So King Saul stays in place. The monarchy is now in Israel. And you and I know that Saul goes down the hill. And though David comes, Solomon comes also and goes down the hill. And then many kings in Israel of consequence are still in Israel and and Judah. Still, King Jesus remains. And King Jesus and King Yahweh over Israel is still available, always available for deliverance. Because you and I have a king over kings and a lord over lords yesterday, today, and forever. That's good news. Don't you love that that God, the one ultimate true king of Israel, can operate no matter how Israel operates? That you and I are part of a kingdom, and in fact, the same kingdom, the kingdom of grace that God has always been part of, Paul tells us in Romans 9, that God's word has not failed, that not all Israel, God's kingdom, are descended of Israel, ethnic theocratic nation. Romans 9.6 Rather, it is the people of grace or of promise, that's God's kingdom. And so, when true believers trusted in Jesus that that He was or excuse me, when true believers trusted in King Yahweh during the time of Samuel, and when true believers trusted in Jesus that He was Yahweh incarnate, and when true believers trusted in God's grace in a time when the church was dark and taught only good works will get you into heaven, and when true believers trust in Jesus under domineering monarchies, under corrupt democracies, under tyrannical dictatorships, under socialist communist regimes, they are all putting their hope and trust and faith in the one King who is over all kings. And all kings will answer to that one king, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And thank God that it is our king who is ultimately sovereign because he remains faithful even if we are faithless. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we put too much credit into our leaders. We put too much fear into leaders and authorities over us. You you call us to pray for them. You call us even to obey them. But we don't need to fear them. Father, we, we need to know that there is always a king over the kings above us. There's always a Lord over the lords above us. Father, I'm so grateful to be part of a family that extends throughout all time, throughout all governments, throughout all peoples. That in Christ Jesus, you've torn down the wall and you make one people united under your rule. Father, we know that you are ruling and reigning today, but we look forward to a time of absolute rule. A time whenever you are king of heaven and earth and everybody knows it. Because then there won't be any politicking anymore. There won't be any bashing. There won't be any fear. But Father, at the same time, you give us the power 
as well as the authority to invite people into the kingdom that you have. Help us to invite people into this kingdom to know that they don't need to live in fear, that even though they don't have the audience of their president or their leader's ear, they have the audience of the ear of the King of Kings. And Father, that we can live and serve and follow you. And we're grateful that we serve a king with a heart like yours, that loves and gives and gives generously, that forgives and forgives and forgives, that delivers. Father, we are grateful for that. Help us as we continue about our day to to know this, to live this out. And Father, that whenever we want to take fear or whenever we see injustice done and we want justice to come, to know that we can appeal to the King of kings and Lord of lords. And help us to know each and every day how you, our King, have become flesh to die for us. Because that humility is the beginning of how we love like you love. Father, we thank you and we ask and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.